Excel Pro. These just geniuses, people who are under the age of 25 who are creating these games or concepts, prodigies within Roblox. And so that's really interesting. On the other end of the spectrum, obviously, you have companies that are just not prepared to tolerate any kind of modification or derivative content at all. And I think that most major entertainment brands moving forward are going to have to have some kind of interactive component to them in order to be relevant to the younger generation. Welcome to Excel Pro IP Law, where we provide interviews and products to accelerate your professional development. I'm Neil Ungerleither. Today, we're going to talk about entertainment and IP law. Our guest is Simon Pullman. Simon is a partner and co-chair of Prior Cashman's Media and Entertainment and Film Entertainment Groups. We talk about IP rights and turning video games into movies, copyright law and multiple stakeholder situations, streaming services and the law, and more. Excel Pro's interviews and products help to improve your day-to-day job performance and accelerate professional development. For a transcript of this episode and to learn more about the Excel Pro IP law community, visit joinexcelpro.com. That's J-O-I-N-A-C-C-E-L-P-R-O.com. And now for my conversation with Simon Pullman. Simon, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Could you tell us a little bit about you and your background? Certainly. So as you mentioned, I'm a partner here at Prior Cashman. We are a mid-sized law firm with offices in New York, Miami, and Los Angeles. I am based in New York, although as you might imagine, given the nature of my work, I do a fair amount with Los Angeles. And essentially, I'm a company-side entertainment attorney. So I'm involved in all steps of the process for helping to make film and television and podcasts and interactive productions from the acquisition of rights, which today could be a book or series of books. It could be a podcast, somebody's real life story. It could be a video game or a graphic novel through hiring writers and directors and other attachments through doing the deals with the buyers, which in the present ecosystem, and this has been the case for the past five years or so at least, can range from traditional distributors, be those broadcast networks or traditional film theatrical distributors, through to digital streamers, who obviously have had quite an effect on the overall media ecosystem over the last few years. And part of your practice is around entertainment deals for IP rights holders. I know you recently wrote about this. What considerations should they keep in mind? So I think it's helpful to contextualize first. There's been a huge demand for film content of all kinds over the last few years, driven in large part by the streamers, but not exclusively. So these range from live action series, whether they're ongoing or limited series, motion pictures, animation, the anime world has just exploded. And that has flowed down all parts of the ecosystem. And you have to start with something. You start with material very often. And sometimes that can be a spec script. It could be an original idea that a writer has put together and this has formulated and has written a script about. But very often it's based on something. So that can be a book, a work of literary fiction. It can be a series of books. But increasingly, it's perhaps atypical forms of IP. So when I wrote that article, I was thinking about a few things, toys and consumer products, tabletop games, 
but particularly video games. And I think anybody listening to this will have an awareness that there's been a big explosion in the IP market for video game rights over the last few years. Now, this has been happening for a while. The Sonic the Hedgehog movies were very successful, but it's really exploded in the last even six months or so with The Last of Us on HBO, which has been very critically acclaimed and was a great success for them. And also in the last three weeks or so, the Super Mario Brothers movie, which is at the time we're recording this well on track for a billion dollars and will likely sail past that yet to be released in Japan. And there are all sorts of considerations that one has to think about when doing a rights deal. And I do them on both sides. So I acquire a lot of material for studios and networks and producers, but I also represent rights holders ranging from novelists to video game companies to podcast companies who are on the right side of things and have a studio or a streamer look to acquire their material. And so generally speaking, we're thinking about what rights are being granted. And the traditional model historically was, thanks, book author, we'll take all the screen rights and everything else. You can continue to publish your book, and maybe you can do radio readings and live readings of the book, and everything else lives with the studio. That's still fairly typical, fairly commonplace, but it won't really work for a high-end, ultra-high-level rights holder, which is what the sort of that article that I was thinking about. If you're a video game publisher and you've sold millions of copies of your game, and you have plans to build out the franchise of your game through new iterations and downloadable content and merchandising, uh, perhaps time publication, you simply can't give those rights. So that's one of the pieces that we negotiate. Increasingly, approvals and controls. Again, historically, very little sort of deference has been given to the author or the underlying creator. If you have a big book series, however, that's starting to change. And it's also, again, with if you have something that's pre-existing and it's a brand and it's sold a lot of copies and you've got something to protect, you're not going to jeopardize that by potentially having a production that is either not commensurate, not on brand for that particular IP, or is of a poor quality. And so we're seeing an increasing amount of involvement from rights holders there. And a lot of the complexity is navigating those issues. Who has control on what pieces? How does it work politically? And so on and so forth. And then of course, we've got the economics, which are huge. And we're involved in a lot of competitive rights situations. It's not exclusively limited to big consumer brands or things that are out in the marketplace. Very often in Hollywood, it's a competitive right situation around an article, for example. There's a New York Magazine article about some scammer or true crime story or some stranger than fiction thing. It circulates over the weekend, and by the following week, you've got a bidding war. And so if you look about the situation around, for example, the Anna Sorokin story that Shonda Rhimes did inventing Anna, which was a limited series, I have no first-hand knowledge. I wasn't involved in that deal, but I have to imagine that was a situation where it escalated pretty quickly. And so there was a lot of bidding. And so when something has a competitive nature, clearly the economics tend to be greater for the rights holder. So a lot of our listeners are IP, copyright, patent lawyers who work in different fields. I know you just touched on this in your answer, but could you explain a little bit about what makes working in IP and entertainment unique? It's interesting because the first thing that comes immediately to mind really has absolutely nothing to do with the law and not even necessarily to do with the substance of the deals. And it's really more about the course of dealing in terms of operating within Hollywood, how the process works, the interaction between agents and managers and attorneys on both sides of things. 
And we've seen it. it can be quite intimidating. It can be quite difficult to come outside of the industry because of the idiosyncrasies of how things operate. It's a heavily relationship-driven business, truly. And in my business, I'm dealing a lot with the same parties over and over again, particularly when I'm acquiring material or hiring writers. We deal with generally a handful of entertainment, talent boutiques, and agencies, of course, the big three agencies being CAA, WME, and UTA, all of whom have very strong literary agency groups. In terms of substance, I would say there are really pretty well-established structures for these kinds of deals. The typical structure is called an option purchase. The producer pays a down payment of guaranteed monies for an exclusive right effectively to develop and pitch the project, and then they pay a purchase price typically speaking, when they're closer to production. And there are all sorts of other elements to those, but they're pretty formulaic in that respect. And I think if you come from outside that and you don't really know anything about that, it could be quite difficult, although as alluded to, the structures are changing. And then humorously, because I've talked to a lot of people over the years who come from, it could be media, it could be tech, you know, things that are fairly adjacent, but we have a lot of things in our business. Credit. In my business, credit is one of the most important things. And I've had conversations with people who are like, this is absolutely crazy. I don't understand why people care so much. And there are a variety of reasons for that. One, I think, is that when you're driving down Sunset Boulevard in Los Angeles, where most of the talent lives, they want to see a billboard with their name on it. And they want to make sure that if they're an actor, their likeness is a commensurate size and everything else. And the talent lawyers spend a lot of time protecting for that. But I honestly couldn't really recommend that anybody venture into this world without having some kind of specialist guidance or support from people who navigate it. Because the thing about these deals is, generally speaking, the client often wants the deal to make. And the deal won't make if you're just not familiar with the terms. But on the other side of things, there are long-lasting repercussions to these deals. And if you grant rights to a studio, you could easily find yourself in a position where your rights are living with that studio in perpetuity and with its successors and assignees and everything for a very long period of time and effectively for perpetuity. And following up on that, what sort of IP issues accompanied the rise of franchises for video games, science fiction, fantasy, comic characters? How did that change your work? The first thing I should preface for you in the audience is I'm a huge nerd. I have an arcade one-up machine here, and anybody who's seen my home office would attest to that. So this is an area that I've always been passionate about, and I'm very fortunate to work in it. And I do think that my background knowledge of these media is very helpful in making deals. There are a myriad of issues that relate to science fiction or genre or YA series or video games. One is obviously that there's franchise potential. And I think you have to address a deal that's maybe for a one-off close-ended drama, especially if it's maybe an indie drama, slightly differently than something that in theory in success could drive multiple iterations and sequels. Now, it seldom happens, but we always have to plan for success because that's when the attorney's work gets scrutinized. So I would look at announcements of the last few weeks. We have Harry Potter reimagining as a television series. We have a Twilight series that's just been announced. We have a Hunger Games spinoff that I think is a prequel, not based on one of the trilogy of books, but that continues to live on. So 
you have to think through what if this was a success, particularly when you have a property that is creating a world. Now, with that comes some really interesting rights deals. So if we look at comic books, for example, one of the hallmarks of comic books, and this is Marvel and DC, but it's also if you look at Valiant Comics, which was big in the 90s, crossovers between properties. That's one of the things about Marvel. He was Spider-Man, crosses over, and now he's interacting with Wolverine from the X-Men, and then maybe the next issue with the Hulk, and always oh, joined the Avengers now, and now we have Secret Wars. You have to work out, even for a new comic book, how those things are treated, which characters go to, with a particular rights holder. And obviously, if you're an owner, you want to think about what the creative potential is, what your plans may be and what rights you might inadvertently grant. And likewise, on the buyer side, you have to make an analysis as to what rights you might need. And by the way, this is not limited to comic book properties. If you look at recent series from the past few years, there's a series called Bosch on Amazon, which is a procedural. I love it. It's a crime show. And then Netflix premiered a show called The Lincoln Lawyer, which is also really strong. Both of those are procedurals that are based on crime books by Michael Connolly. The Lincoln Lawyer appears in a bunch of Bosch books, right? But The Lincoln Lawyer clearly is controlled by Netflix, whereas Bosch is controlled by Amazon. And I think, in fact, The Lincoln Lawyer series had to create a new character to play the Bosch role because they didn't have Bosch. On the video game side of things, even more complex because of the fluidity of how they think and how they develop. So what you often want as a video game company is the ability to fold back characters and concepts into expansions of the game and dlc and those kinds of things which leads to something that i talk about a lot i call it the daryl issue or the daryl problem there was a very successful show called the walking dead if you're interested in the law and litigation around entertainment then i strongly recommend that you look into it but effectively there was a character called daryl was created for the series by amc by default and by tradition any character that's originally created by the studio is owned by the studio and cannot be used by the underlying rights holder. So effectively, that's a new character. He's owned by AMC and Robert Kirkman, who actually is a producer on the show, and his publisher could not fold that character back into the books absent some kind of special agreement. That tends to be an issue for video game developers and publishers because they want this sort of synergy. They want this organic storytelling. If you look at the cyberpunk anime show that was licensed by Netflix and got fabulous reviews, the cyberpunk game is, I believe they built in crossovers between the game and the series, which you simply cannot do if you've got a schism in the rights. What are some of the biggest copyright and IP issues in the gaming world these days? A modern video game, especially a AAA title, is very expensive and very complex. And so typically speaking, there are a lot of issues that come with the various assets and with clearances there. I would say that one of the issues that's really interesting within the right space and gaming relates to user-generated content. And these platforms that are as much experiences and social sort of playgrounds as they are games. So that's certainly Roblox and Minecraft. In certain ways, it is Fortnite as well. It's really interesting. There's a lot of room for a, a huge amount of creativity. A lot of people are excited about concepts of co-creation. You have to pay some scrutiny to what the terms and conditions of the site say in terms of what's permissible. 
in terms of what you can and cannot do and who owns what. And then there are question marks, obviously, if multiple people are contributing to a project. And from my perspective as a deal maker, it's really interesting. We have done some deals, for example, Roblox Games, to effectively move into television. There are going to be licensing and merchandising possibilities for those properties as well. And I wouldn't be surprised in the future to see some fairly major IPs grow out of one of these sort of virtual experiences. But what that means is that you have to really think about ownership, chain of title. If you are licensing or granting rights, you may have to disclaim what you don't own. I posted this morning about crossover of different brands and so forth. I've acquired video games in the past where they've had third-party characters from movies in the game. And clearly that has to be carved out from what they're able to grant to a potential buyer. So it's just really interesting. I think there's just consideration and scrutiny to the details. But also increasingly, I think game publishers and developers need to think about the future. I was in GDC, Game Developers Conference, for the first time this year, and I was honestly quite staggered by the level of interest that people in the gaming space have in traditional entertainment. It's something I've been excited about for some time, but I didn't realize it was quite that level of excitement. But you have to be careful, because if you're a developer and you have those kinds of aspirations, you may inadvertently end up giving rights to your initial publisher or financier that you didn't know that you were granting, and that can create a schism. And in fact, that's something else that we've encountered on the buyer side. So you mentioned earlier UGC, user-generated content, for a lot of these games in virtual worlds. So if our listeners who might not be familiar, there could be a huge volume of that, right? Almost infinite levels. And the game publishers and developers... There's a spectrum of sort of permissibility, right? There are certain companies that allow modifications and additions as long as you adhere to certain rules and certain terms of service that they make fairly clear. Something like Roblox, and I think ultimately possibly Fortnite, are sort of based on interactivity and social aspects and sharing of things. That's what Roblox is. It's a platform where you can create. And we've seen established brand holders create things in there. I think there's an official Sonic the Hedgehog game within Roblox, but also these just geniuses, people who are under the age of 25, in some instances under the age of 21, who are creating these games or concepts, prodigies within Roblox. And so that's really interesting. On the other end of the spectrum, obviously, you have companies that are just not prepared to tolerate any kind of modification or derivative content or whatever else at all. I don't need to say as fabulous as they are, Nintendo just not really interested and haven't been historically in that kind of activity because they really like to tightly control their IP and the quality of the product. But it's something that I think that the younger generations are really interested in, this notion of creation, this notion of having a tool set and being able to share something with their friends, but also with the bigger world. A myriad of issues, especially with younger people around copper and everything else, I know there have been some question marks around the economics as well, because obviously a lot of value flows back to those platforms. But it is a massively popular activity. And I think in general, gaming, digital, virtual world, these all color how the younger generations interact with the world around them and interact with, with media and entertainment. And I think that most major entertainment brands moving forward are going to have to have some kind of interactive component to them in order to be relevant to the younger generation. 
and Simon, shifting gears a little bit, I'm curious about your career path. Were you always planning on IP law? The answer is yes. As long as I can remember, I was the person who was watching the credits of every TV show and movie for the order and who got the and and who got the with at the end of a TV show or looking at the poster or asking the question, well, why is this character not in this particular production? So in that respect, I'm very fortunate to be able to carry some of my personal interests on into my professional work. I am, and I have been, a huge consumer of media. I've watched a lot of movies historically and television and read a lot of books and graphic novels and played a lot of games. And it infuses everything I do and how I think about the world. It's very much the prism through which I see things. I got into this business, and I would say to anybody who's listening, who's aspiring, the hardest thing about getting into entertainment law is getting your foot in the door. It's quite difficult unless you have some kind of a direct connection. I was introduced to my former firm by somebody I'd worked for and with, who's really been at the vanguard of the transmedia movement, who's Jeff Gomez. And just when I got the opportunity, they said, jump. I said, how high? I was first there in the morning. I sat on the couch until the partner told me I could go home at the end of the day. I worked weekends. I did everything because I had no plan B and because this is really what I wanted to do. I did a lot of independent film at the outset, worked on documentaries. I was fortunate to get exposure to things like finance and distribution. And then effectively, at one point in time, I was given the opportunity to work on as effectively the outside inside sort of business affairs, general counsel type thing for Macmillan in its entertainment activities. So these are the kinds of books where it's either something that's catalog and it's some historical deal that they brought out that they happened to get the film or television rights in, or perhaps it was negotiated or it's something that the publisher had conceived of and doing those deals. And that's where I really got to cut my teeth on doing a lot of rights deals from the buyer perspective. We did children's books and graphic novels and I had situations where the contracts were pulled out with the wax paper from the 1930s with handwritten notes all over them, and we had to interpret them, what can we grant, and everything else. But it was a real sort of moment of inception, and now we're full circle because this whole concept of cross-platform and transmedia was something that everyone was excited about, extremely excited about 11, 12 years ago. The concept, or at least the words, faded, although certain the techniques have been seen in things like Marvel. But now here we are back again, and particularly at the intersection of film and television and video gaming. I think there's a lot to do. I don't think every single one of these experiments is going to be a massive success, but I think a lot of them will be because they bring brand awareness, they bring existing audiences who are really passionate about those particular worlds. And that's key to everything. So there's a lot of luck in any career, but I was fortunate to get the opportunity since I got that opportunity, just worked very hard and read and consumed as much as I possibly could about the industry and just dedicated myself to client service. Because that's the thing about being a lawyer. The only thing that matters is the clients, the clients and the work, everything. The client and client service, that's your North Star. That's everything. And so you just have to do your best for the client in all situations and give them the best possible service. That was Simon Pullman. Simon, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. For a transcript of this conversation and to learn more about the Excel Pro IP law community, visit joinexcelpro.com. That's J-O-I-N-A-C-C-E-L-P-R-O.com. Excel Pro's interviews and products accelerate your professional development. 
Our mission is to improve our members' day-to-day job performance and make career goals achievable. Thanks again to today's guest. If your colleagues in any sector of the IP law field might be interested, please let them know about Excel Pro. As our community grows, it grows more useful for its members. Remember to send your comments and career questions to questions at joinexcelpro.com. You can also call us at 614-642-2235. That's 614-64-A-C-C-E-L. Excel Pro IP Law is powered by Kaplan. The producers are J. Ray Sparks and Jeff Eisenman. The team is Joanna Kolkarni, Caitlin Cole, Jared Goff, Harrison Shapiro, Inesh Bose, Arnesh Bose, Teza Zoeta, Aliza Solario, Jessica Stillman, Matt Crossman, and me, Neil Angleither. Remember, we excel together. See you next time.